You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. This live webcast will cover Wind, Part 1 of Iron Gold, the fourth installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga, and then it will be split into four podcast episodes, with each covering one of the four POV characters. If you're watching this as a webcast, there's a chance you will hear some spoilers for later books in the Red Rising series during our live webcast. However, if you're listening to this as a podcast, any spoilery bits will have been edited out. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Oh, and uh, by the way, the views expressed by the hosts are those of us as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. Last but not least, don't forget to check out our Patreon. With 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month, it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return, including early access to the podcast versions of these episodes, as well as timed patron-only access to these live videos, which will only be available to our patrons for the month after they've finished airing. You can find us at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. And now. Let's dive back into Darrow's story with his Iron Gold Part 1 POV chapters. Iron Gold kicks off with a brief prologue introducing the fall of Mercury. And while it doesn't detail the actual fall, there are bits and pieces of what's happening, including the bombing of Taiki and Darrow falling in another iron rain, with the concluding revelation that it is the 10th year of war and the 33rd year of Darrow's life. Before the story cuts to him parading down the Via Triumphia on Luna for what is the fourth Liberation Day since we last saw him, this time celebrating that Mercury has joined the um, supposedly free worlds of Luna, Earth, and Mars, except, oops, not everyone is happy about recent events because it turns out that when Darrow let that iron rain fall, he was actually disobeying Senate orders. But Darrow gonna Darrow. And at this point, the only thing he's focused on is being back with his wife, Mustang. Of course, who is still the sovereign. Later that evening, Darrow and Severo arrive at Selene Manor, the official country retreat for the sovereign, and the place that Darrow and his family call home, since apparently they haven't been back to Mars in quite some time. First things first, Darrow and Severo go find their children. Pax, now 10, and Severo's oldest daughter, Electra, 9, who are in the dueling grotto for some razor training. Darrow and Severo watch for a bit, but eventually Severo, who is clearly best dad ever, can no longer contain himself and announces his presence, earning himself one heck of a hug from not-so-little Electra, while Pax, on the other hand, is very cold with Darrow, something that Thraxa and Niobe of Telemannus try to excuse, but uh, let's be real— Darrow is obviously not winning any awards for being best dad, and he's got to make up for a lot of missed time. First, Darrow has some other catching up to do, though, with his mother, for one, which leads him also running into Dancer after having noticed his old friend's absence at the Triumph. It's not an easy conversation between these two, with both of them seeming to be hiding things from each other, but hey, now it's time for a family dinner! Okay, well... 
first, Victor finally shows up, seven months pregnant with her and Severus' fourth daughter, and as an extra in the best ways, as always. In fact, it seems that both Pax and his obsidian friend Balder are pretty much in love with her, which is absolutely, adorably hilarious. Their big family dinner is peaceful and full of laughter, and when it's over, Darrow finally gets them alone time with Mustang, who chides him for all of the things they're missing. Life, dinners like the one they just had, the children in the yard, but these sweet moments are interrupted by a call. Because it turns out that Dancer has called an emergency meeting of the Senate, and they're moving Darrow's hearing. You know, because he big time disobeyed orders, up to the very next night. And that's where we find him again as he addresses the Senate, asking for the tools he needs to finish the war once and for all. But despite the gold and coppers agreeing to Darrow's request, Dancer throws a big old wrench in the whole thing when he reminds Darrow that a million people died in the iron rain on Mercury and then calls a witness forward. And who is Dancer's witness? Why, it's none other than Julia Afrikan Bologna, here to reveal that just before the iron rain on Mercury, the Ash Lord sent emissaries to Darrow to request an armistice. Senate erupts in chaos, and while Darrow insists that the Ash Lord never actually wanted peace, the fact that he kept this information from everyone and let the rain fall anyway means he's er, kinda okay, probably really screwed. Darrow is ordered to remain in the city, and while several suggest calling some of their allies to Luna for help, Darrow tells him no, instead they're going to summon the Howlers. Before that, though, Darrow meets with Quicksilver because he has a request. He needs the use of one of Quicksilver's favorite ships. Clearly, there are plots within plans within plans within plots afoot. Now, when the Howlers do finally gather, Severo is demanding to know which one of them snitched about the emissaries. And although Darrow insists that he trusts them all, his trust clearly only extends so far. He also insists that anyone who isn't going to take part in his new plan leave the room before he reveals any of the details. Holiday tells him that she won't abandon the Republic, and Sefi announces that the Obsidian are out as well. The loss of these members hits him hard, even with Severo being his usual maniacal self and welcoming whatever comes next. And what does come next? Well, we won't find out just yet, because first Darrow and the Howlers have to prepare to sneak off Luna. Victor wants Darrow to order Severo to remain behind, but obviously that's not going to happen. However, before they leave, Severo does want to say goodbye to his daughters, and Darrow, for his part, wants to see Pax as well. Sounds like a bad idea, right? Well, it is. Because sure, they do sneak back into the manor and get to see their kids one more time, but Mustang catches them and totally calls the wardens to stop them from leaving. Good on Mustang, honestly, but unfortunately, this could never be an all's well that ends well situation. In fact, it's more like all's terrible and ends terribly because as Darrow and Severo fight their way out, Darrow mistakenly kills Wolfgar, an obsidian warden and old friend of theirs. Mustang is horrified and Pax witnessed the whole thing and all of this is no good, very bad. And that, folks, is where we leave Darrow for now. Despite the Germans telling the citizens of Tyche, a city on Mercury, to evacuate, I really love this passage about a little orange girl who had to remain with her family because her mother was too sick to travel. In her pocket, she carries a bit of paper that she found in the gutter. On it is a little curved sword. She's seen it before on the cube. Her teachers at the government school says it brings chaos. It has set the spheres on fire. But now she secretly draws the blade in the fog her breath has made on the window, and she feels brave. And then too bad the bombs begin to fall. Yikes. 
while there is like some stuff in between the passage about the little orange girl and when we get to actually be in Darrow's head, I don't think the stuff in between really matters all that much yet, but it is really thematic that we do eventually get Darrow thinking. Alone in his armor, waiting to fall from the sky, he remembers the girl who began it all. He remembers how her red hair fell over her eyes, how she breathed as she lay atop him, so warm and fragile in a world far too cold. She has been dead longer than she was ever alive, and now that her dream has spread, he wonders if she would recognize it. He wonders, too, if he were to die today, would he recognize his own life? What sort of man would his son become in this world he's made? He thinks of his son's face and how soon he will become a man. And he thinks of his golden wife, how she stood on the landing pad, looking up at him, wondering if he'd ever return home again. More than anything, he wants this to end. Because uh, it's the 10th year of war. Oops. Like, listen, we all know that revolutions do not happen overnight, but this shit's been going on for 10 years because all of the parties involved have these like insane technologies and apparently literally millions of people that they can expend in just one action, AKA in this case, the Iron Man on Mercury. But damn, man, 10 years a whole ass decade. He hasn't been around to see his son grow up. God knows how much time he's actually gotten to spend with Mustang, who is also doing her job being sovereign. Whew. It sounds shitty and absurdly long, but it also fully tracks. In every story, you hear about like the initial victory or like you win the big war. You don't see the cleanup afterwards. And we know from real life examples that the cleanup itself is what takes a really long time. And the cleanup is usually where most people fail. Well, that, and this isn't just one country or even one planet to clean well, up. It's the whole inner solar system, right? Well, that's the other thing, right? Like we think about 10 years and like, God, I really hate to even use this as an example, but the conflict in the Middle East that escalated as of 9-11, that's been going on for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And then the United States claimed to have fixed things and pulled out. And we realized how quickly that that wasn't the case at all. And if that can be happening more than 20 years in our world, I'm imagining hundreds of years to fully solve this. I'm not sitting here thinking this was ever going to be solved fast. I don't know that Pierce Brown, I have a feeling he originally hoped he would get to write more, but probably didn't know. I guess he always could have written more and self-published it, but... You could have a book series and it could not be a success. And then the publisher is not going to pick you up for a second trilogy or whatever. In this case, turning into a set of four books. But anyway, through Darrow, we right away meet Wolfgar, who, as we all already know, dies at the end of part one. But it's really cool to me how Pierce Brown tied this character in with the original trilogy and also gave us enough of him to really be like, yeah, this guy seems like a cool dude. I like him. And so that when he does die at the end of part one, you actually feel it, right? Beyond just, wow, Darrow is an asshole. It's like, wow, not only is he an asshole, but he killed this guy because Wolfgar is an obsidian who was at ye old Iron Reign in book two. And 
it was right after they got under the shield to the city and the little brown girl had the EMP and it took out all of their suits and everything. And they had to dig everybody out of the muck and Severo put a razor into an obsidian's hand. So that's that tie-in where we find out that Wolfgar is that obsidian. And I do think it's interesting that from what we know of gold razors, they always have like their deeds carved into them. The handles appear to always be made of metal. I don't think I've ever heard anything to the contrary for that. But for Wolfgar, Darrow points out that the hilt of his current razor, which clearly he had made or made on his own, is made from the fang of an ice dragon from Earth's South Pole. So it doesn't have to be metal, I guess, the base. I, I never really thought about that, but I think that's really cool that his razor is made from something that's like specific to him and his people. Also, Wolfgar is a warden, as we mentioned in the summary, and Darrow calls him a true believer in the Republic, in the principles for which it stands, <laughs> and the orders that the Senate gives. I guess there's definitely this rift because we know, obviously, that Darrow let the iron rain fall and he was disobeying the Senate's orders when he did, which side Darrow. Ugh. But not everybody feels the same way about how things should be going. And that's probably a good part of why they have been at war this long. Beyond the fact that obviously planets upon planets of people to deal with and also the crazy amounts of technology they have that we don't have. So that's a different kind of fight, right? But Anyway, I really like the stuff about Wolfgar. I like what we get of him, even though he's taken away from us. I'm annoyed because I just got attached to him long enough to be like, oh, look at this cool dude. I think I could really like this dude. Oh, wait, no. Never mind. Yeah. One part of a book, damn it. I love Darrow's story here because it is very good storytelling. And I'm not saying that I called it that the next part of this series was going to be Darrow becoming the tyrant that he tried to overthrow. But uh, yep, call that one. Yikes. It's really good storytelling because as much as I hate everything Darrow is doing, I still understand why he's an idiot like this because he trusts nobody. He only trusts Mustang and Mustang doesn't have the power to be an autocrat because that's not what they want to build. But because he trusts nobody else, he just keeps sticking his foot in his mouth and then choking on it. And now he's literally like, he's got his whole body in his mouth and he's just like an inverted. That is disgustingly mouth. accurate. That his throat is back into his mouth. <laughs> no, please stop I describing hate, things. <laughs> I hate the imagery that I'm evoking in my head from this, but like, tell me I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. No. I said it quite a few times when we were covering the original trilogy. I've never been a big Darrow fan. So when Iron Gold came out, there were a lot of Darrow stands that were like, oh my God, this isn't Darrow we know and love. And I'm like, uh, guys, this is this absolutely is the Darrow were, you know. <laughs> were they this white men? Because I bet they were white men. They were definitely white There's men. There's still plenty of people that aren't just white men who stand Darrow and who still, to this day, believe he does nothing wrong. I understand why people like him in theory, but his actual behaviors are this guy has no real plan, no real strategic thought, no real guiding principles other than attempting to win, so to speak. And murder, 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 murder. <laughs> That was yeah. I wouldn't say I wouldn't go that far. I mean, he's not just he's not Charles Manson. His solution to almost every problem is murder. I would objectively say he is worse though, because I mean, think about it. 
I have read so many fantasy books with like fantasy battles, etc, etc. Darrow's body count, even in the second book, managed to somehow be so cosmically enormous. I think the only one who might challenge him is Luke Skywalker, but that's because he blew up an entire planet's worth of people. But they were bad. So... No, that well, okay. I mean, the, 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 now you're getting into. We're assuming that everyone who was in the Empire was bad. Again, I <laughs> oversimplifying. <laughs> we're just salary men, and I acknowledge they were that. all like, Nazis. They were all bad. That's the other thing, though. Yeah, they were salary men who were still working for the Nazis. I don't give a fuck. They were Nazis. They should die. Mm -hmm. But regardless, though, the fact that I, a person who has consumed a lot of fantasy, violent media, still got into this series and was like, what the absolute fuck at Darrow's body count is alarming. Because that's how I should feel for the bad guy's body count, not for the good guys. And the worst part is that the bad guys are still worse which is what makes all of this awful. I now want to start a website of highest body counts in fantasy. And, and, <laughs> oh but I think you have to also do percentages of like, okay, so this is based on medieval stuff. And this is based mm -hmm. on, I mean, because let, let's be real. This is, again, like I mentioned earlier. A modern war. It's not even modern. It is beyond modern. It is a world where they have colonized every planet they could. And even some moons as well. So they have kind of all the space in the world with so their terraforming and everything. And also they literally made the reds to breed like rabbits. They pump pheromones into their living quarters. They only have, I think, a five month gestation period. I think my problem is that it does come down to the basic problem in this society that they're trying to dismantle, which is that human lives have no value anymore. And that is the very base problem that I tend to have with Darrow. Because even though Darrow is supposed to be the good guy, he still falls into his society's paradigm of, oh, there are so many people, so they're kind of a resource. Just because there are 8 billion people on this planet to use for your war, that doesn't make it any less bad that one person gets killed in your war. Just because there are 800 billion people in your solar system, that doesn't make it less bad that one person was accidentally injured in your war, you know? And by that count, it doesn't matter that Darrow has a bigger ability to cause damage than on a medieval level in terms of body count. The fact is that Darrow has continued to do this. And even at opportunities where he couldn't have done this, he still did it. And that's my biggest problem with him. I've always loved the idea of Darrow, but the actual practical- Darrow is not so great. Yeah. I love that point because it's basically the argument that Dancer makes, right? Is Darrow goes to the Senate and says, y'all, I can win this war right now. Just give me more people to use. And Dancer's like, you're murdering people. You're straight up just sacrificing people in order to win this war. And yes, theoretically, like you could kill the Ash Lord, but does that really end the war? And at what cost? And that's what Darrow seems to not be able to understand is there are real costs to what he is doing. And it's why he lost Sephi and the Obsidians. It's why he lost Holiday. Because even if they follow him, they still see what he's doing and he's, they see what the cost of it is. 
in some cases, like with Sefi specifically, that she lost millions of her people and at a disproportionate amount to every other group of people who was involved in that Iron Reign. They specifically targeted the Obsidians and killed the Obsidians at higher rates. And so she knew that if she, even if she believed in Darrow, even if she believed in his cause to go kill the Ash Lord, she would be sacrificing her people more than anybody else would be sacrificing. So let us be the devil's advocate for no, no. Let's be Darrow's advocate for a second. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I'll allow that one. <laughs> I think it will allow it. Um, and I personally don't think it's right. And the fact that he's in theory tried to build this republic and then ignore the republic, not a good look. But in his view, the Senate has become Neville Chamberlain 1938. That's his view of this. And if that's really your view and you have the power to not go that route, I don't know. I still think it's a terrible decision and it defeats the whole purpose of trying to build a republic, but he doesn't want the republic to fall. That's the problem. And I think here's my biggest problem with Darrow. Does he have the power to fix things? That's the real question, right? Because he's already proved in these last 10 years that he doesn't know how to build. He only knows how to make war. So what happens if he makes a war on the republic that he tried to build? Is he going to be able to rebuild it? No, we already know he can't. So what is he doing? He well, cannot do this again. I understand that he has the power to do it and it's frustrating to stand on the sidelines when you have the power to do something and it's even more frustrating to sit around and see a government do absolutely nothing because God, don't we all know that? But like, you can't tear something down if you cannot also build something new. To some of the points that you guys have made in regards to them specifically targeting the obsidians and all the obsidians that Seppi lost. I'm just going to say this because I do not clearly remember if it happened in part one. I think it did, but I'm not entirely sure. There's a conversation and I can't remember. I want to say it was in Ephraim's chapters, but I can't quite remember because it was kind of in passing where they talk about Seppi's horde sacking a city on Mars and they did really terrible things, which is kind of what people were worried about regarding the obsidian and morning star and listen i'm not saying one thing is right because another happened or anything like that but just keep in mind that they were obviously targeting the obsidian because the obsidian are strong the obsidian are smarter than they ever really probably gave them credit for before etc but we're very likely targeting the obsidian because of other things that had happened on other planets and in this case particularly Mars, that were really, really terrible when the Obsidian did land first and sack a city. Now that said, there's one thing I want to go back to, but since we've already been talking about Dancer and we've been talking about the idea of how much power Darrow actually has, he does not have the power of the law. Yes, he is married to Mustang, but even Mustang as sovereign has given away most of the power that the previous sovereign had, rightfully so, of course, to the Senate. But apparently there are cults that say prayers in Darrow's name. Now, granted, they also say them in Ragnar's and apparently Lysander <laughs> Aloons. Oh. But Dancer is talking to Darrow about this and he hands out some hard truths. He says, the line of Selenius died with Octavia. You are a fool to let that boy go, Lysander, he means. But if he was alive, we'd know it. He got swallowed up by the war just like the rest of them. That leaves only you. The people love you, Darrow. You can't abuse that love. 
whatever you do, you set an example. So if you don't follow the law, why should our imperators, our governors, why should anyone else? How are we supposed to govern if you go off and do whatever you damn well please? Like he's a gold, by the way. Yup. I think Dancer is being incredibly naive by believing that the Ash Lord and that the Bolognos will actually follow through with any sort of peace treaty because we know they won't because they suck and gold betrays and that's what gold does. I think the other colors don't understand gold politics in that way. And I think that if there was some sort of way to help them understand, that would actually be more productive than this. Because what Dancer sees is an actual chance. And to him, it is an actual chance because he has no reason not to trust the Bolognas. But Mustang knows and Darrow knows. And I hate to be like, Darrow does have a good point there to not trust the Bolognas. But oh, I, yeah, I love really Dancer good. so much because he's one of those characters that he has a very, very limited perspective of what gold politics is actually like. But he's trying to do his best despite that. But because of his limited point of view, he's making some not great choices ultimately. But the other part is that taking Darrow out of power is not one of those choices because Darrow should not be in power anymore. Darrow should just go be a dad, but he's not going to do that because Darrow is a control freak, but also is unable to do anything except stab people. Speaking of dancers, just to go back a little bit, one of the things Darrow notes is that if Fitchner is the father of the Rising, it'd be fair to call Dancer the favorite uncle, despite the dissolution of the Sons of Ares. And of course, we get the future exchange between Darrow and Dancer, where Dancer's like, yeah, dude, people say prayers in your name. Like, you need to be better with your power. But before that, they have this interesting exchange where they're talking about how Darrow has trouble sleeping while Dancer, who was in the thick of the fighting to free Mars, which is a period they call the Rat War, and he liberated over 100 mines, pisses the bed when he sleeps. And not that Dancer will take meds for his PTSD, even if other veterans do, which I reds, honestly. It's just uh, to me that even despite the things that have changed, the moves they made and everything, that there's still so much of red ideals and culture that's ingrained in them that there's certain things they can't get around. And in this case, for Dancer, he's like, I'm not taking meds. And then also just to note that because we're talking about the political stuff that Dancer's involved in, he founded the Vox Populi, which is a socialist low-color party. And the specific reason he founded this party is because he believes there's undue gold influence over the Republic. And listen, are any of us shocked that that's probably the case? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, none of us are shocked by that. But... It seems that, you know, like you said, Nami, it's like, gosh, you respect the man, you respect his ideals, you respect what he's done and what he's trying to do. But at the same time, he's doing all the right things, but he still hasn't been let into the room. Well, I mean, the fact that he's trusting. Well, no, no, no. That's what I mean. The Bolognas right? and the Ash Lord is like. So, so that's what I mean. The room that I'm talking about here is like the room of Darrow and Mustangs and other high gold knowledge of what gold politics is like and what you can expect from people like the Ash Lord. But because they haven't let Dancer and the Box Populi and the Low Colors and literally everybody not gold into that, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I think there's an argument that could be made to say that Mustang, especially that they've maybe tried 
But I think there's also that, let's be real, even in Morningstar, so much of what we saw from Dancer was just, this is all about red. It's all about liberating Mars. It's not about the solar system, the worlds, the society as a whole. So I do think that there is a narrow mindset on his part. And maybe it has, hopefully it has widened. He does seem to understand that the obsidians have also suffered a lot. I mean, he talks about the million people who died to take mercury and how so many of the people who fell in the iron rain who were targeted, et cetera, were obsidians. So he notes that we tire of the weight the obsidians do, I do. So he does understand some things, but I think while some of it is certainly the fact that he and likely the other low color parties have not been schooled as they could or should have been in the ways of gold politics, I do also think that Dancer himself, I don't think he's completely gotten rid of his narrow mindset that we saw in Morningstar, where it's all about Mars and it's all about red. Well, I can't blame him for that because he's right. Who's advocating for red now? Certainly not Darrow anymore. Somebody still needs to do it. And Dancer has clearly broadened a lot by advocating for other low colors like obsidians and pinks. It's kind of wild for me to be sticking up for Dancer here so much. But like Dancer really, in my mind, he's representing like the rural, overworked, working class people who don't have access to education and who have like deeply conservative beliefs. And he's trying to advocate for them. And he's doing his best despite not having all of the knowledge. And details wise, I probably don't agree with a lot of what he's doing independently. But like, in a way, though, he's also right. There is too much gold influence. I don't buy he doesn't have the knowledge. I think that's a red herring. I, I think he absolutely has the knowledge and what it is, and he just has a different belief structure, which is fine. I just think he politically has a different background. His beliefs and goals are different than Darrow's and different than Mustang's at this point. But it's not that he doesn't understand the potential risk of the Ash Lord. I think he's just made the calculation currently that we're definitely going to lose another 20 million people, and most of them will be my people, not their people. So let's try this. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We can always go to war later is, I think, his calculation. Now, whether that's a good calculation or not, again, I don't know. It's a different calculation. And for now, it has a lower body count than the Iron Rain. So exactly, exactly. (laughs) Since we're continuing on the dancer track, and I figure we can just finish up with our talk about him and then move on to some other things from Darrow's chapters. Regarding him being that thorn in Darrow's side, and Nick, you already kind of mentioned this earlier when you talked about him speaking out against Darrow in the hearing that happens, but he speaks against Darrow's request for the tools, quote unquote, aka people, (laughs) that will allow him to finish this war once and for all. And he gives a sort of big Darrow speech of his own. And In his speech, Dancer says, you all know I am a man of war. I have held weapons. I have led men. It's what I am. And like most of you, I am also a mortal in a war of giants. But I've learned that giants can be felled with words. Words are our salvation. So I stand here before you armed only with that voice. And I want to ask you, what age do you want to live in? One where the sword leads and we follow, or an age where our voice can sing louder than an engine can roar. 
was that not the song of Persephone, the dream of Eo of Lycos? And he has other points as well. Mars suffers, see, <laughs> while they spend so much to free Mercury and Venus, which are apparently now so indoctrinated that our own colors will fight against us for every inch of ground we take. And that does harken back a little bit to the first thing we noted about the little orange girl, because while she found that piece of paper with Darrow's Reaper scythe drawn on it in the gutter, and she's drawing it on the window, feeling like it's a symbol of hope. She also thinks about how they've been taught that it's a bad thing, that it's a symbol of harm, of war, etc. So that was kind of our first insight into the fact that Mercury is more than just golds fighting to keep their place. They have also indoctrinated the low colors on that planet to want nothing more than to keep things the way it is, which is, ugh, that's its own problem. But that's something that we'll get into much, much later in our conversations regarding this series. And again, Dancer has other tricks up his sleeve. He asks Darrow if he would even know peace if he saw it, which, well, no, probably not. And then he presents his witness, Julia Abalona, who claims that the Ash Lord sent emissaries to Darrow to request a ceasefire. It turns out that Julia Abalona is telling the truth about the emissaries, but the only people who knew about the emissaries were the Howlers, which means they have a snitch in their midst. I do really quickly before we move on, I want to make mention that Dancer actually knows that Darrow has done this and he gives Darrow the chance to come forward yep. about it before any of this happens. When yep. they only have a conversation between the two of them and he specifically says, is there anything else you want to tell me when it's just between us and it's not in front of everybody? And Darrow okay. doesn't say anything and then gets to pay this price. I think it's important to note that Dancer tries to give Darrow every opportunity to be a better person. Oh, yeah. And Darrow throws it all away. Mm -hmm. I'm just really happy, though, that we've become the Dancer fan podcast. Like, I'm here Dancer's for this. a fucking king, honestly. He's like, amazing. Uh, I do stand I need to Dancer. take some meds for his PTSD? Yes. But that is another bridge that we will cross yeah. with some therapy. Would he go to therapy? Also, probably not. No. But you know, baby steps. Yeah. He's still way better than Daryl on like every oh, yeah. level. This is why I was dreading this yeah. book. I knew this would happen. At least in the first book, I could pretend that Daryl was still doing the right thing. <laughs> and Daryl's over here like, just you wait. And I'm like, I don't want that. No, <laughs> I don't want any of this. I literally was like reading the first chapter with the triumph and I'm like, can't wait for him to fuck this up. Can't yep. wait for him to fuck this up. Of course, Darrow doesn't believe that the Ash Lord really means to make peace, but when Severo asks if they should call Orion or the Telemannuses, Darrow looks back to the forum where Mustang is probably attempting to repair the damage done, and he knows, there's nothing more I can do here. This isn't my world. I knew it before, and Dancer just reminded me. The man says all I know is war, and he is right. In my heart, I know my enemy. I know his mettle. I know his cruelty. I know this war will not end with politicians smiling at each other from across the table. It will only end as it began with blood. Summon the howlers! Oh! <laughs> so Darrow is Patton. So before we get into the last bit of serious stuff, 
I just wanted to note a couple things that I did really like about Darrow's chapters. Okay. Which, first of all, when we're learning about the children, the kids who were born since the fall of House Loon do not have sigils implanted on their hands. Which, cool. Okay, that's like the minimal amount of effort. However, I really also like the fact that they are raised in groups of nine with children of disparate colors brought together early in their schooling. I mean, really early. As we mentioned in the summary, Pax has this friend Balder who's part of their, you know, yes, he's sparring with Electra, but Balder's off there on the side. So you know that they're also getting that same education, not just the books education, but the fighting education as well, I'm assuming. The aim being to create the bonds that Darrow found at the Institute, but without, you know, like murder and starvation and shit. So, 100% sure this was Mustang's idea. And oh, I absolutely. Know. Absolutely. I do not give this to Darrow as a plus. Never. Never. I, this was Mustang's idea, and it's amazing and perfect and good. Yeah. Better like, way to make people understand each other than to get them to bond as children. I don't understand how the math works, however, because as we said, some of the colors breed faster than others and there are more of them. So, But that's different because they're no longer pumping pheromones into the mines to like make the reds breed. I hate to refer to it that way, but that's exactly what they were doing. I think that, yes, there was probably a plethora of young children like right after the rising happened. But now I, I don't think he specifies anybody other than Baldur, but well, actually, I would guess that, I mean, shoot, Darrow's own nieces and nephews, they're reds. So I'm sure mm-hmm. some of them are, the younger ones are possibly well, part of this Well, that's the other thing, right? But... This is only on Luna. That's true. We know for a fact that this isn't happening on every planet. Like, it right. can't. So this is only on Luna because that is the sort of extent of the surety of Republic rule and control right now. So, yeah, no, the numbers disparity still exists, but not quite on Luna. But yeah, I mean, the fact that they're actually going out of their way to, because we don't know where Balder is from at all. For all we know, some of these kids are like orphans that families are taking in and whatnot. I want to believe the best about all of this <laughs> because it's all we have right now, okay? <laughs> we're allowed to have fucking happy feelings about one thing. This yes. is the one thing that we're getting this book because the rest... Well, I will say this. I also say the other positive thing is me not ever going to be able to not love the way Daryl thinks about Mustang. It's very good. It's very, very good. We do like positive portrayals of marriage. For sure. And there are a number of them in this series. That's true, because you also have Severa and Victra, who clearly are super fucking into each other. Probably a little bit too into each other. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, that was like a me joke. What are you doing? (laughs) Darrow meets with Quicksilver, who tells him that he should storm the Senate and put the Vox Populi in irons. But Darrow argues that they're still his people. Quicksilver asks, do they know that? The Vox Populi are a cancer. There's only one way to deal with cancer. Cut it out. I told your wife that years ago. Daryl reminds him, we agreed to democracy. Quicksilver laughs and essentially points out Daryl's hypocrisy, saying, yet you're here, aren't you? Change isn't made by mobs that envy, but by men who dare. Fitchner knew that, and so do we, even if they spit on us. Daryl continues to transform into the very oppressor that he sought to overthrow. 
No, but seriously, just by him listening to Quicksilver call Darrow's people a cancer and Darrow does not even object and instead just says we agree to democracy, he's fallen. He is any common person who has now the power to fight the rich and decides, but I'm powerful now. There's a subset of people who are more extreme than others. And Quicksilver's concern is the extreme members lead to disaster. And he thought that way. But that's when it was gold but extreme he... running things. Quicksilver's consistent. No. And he thinks that way when the Vox Populi. Well, no, but that's the other logical fallacy here. Because yes. Quicksilver is the other extreme at the other end. You're right. He's an uber capitalist. He did not. But it is not fair to say that Quicksilver's judgment of the Vox Populi is in any way accurate or reasonable. That's what That's I'm like saying, saying that oh, capitalists okay. today who say that socialism is a cancer is a fair judgment of socialism. Because it's not. Because it's not fair. Well, and honestly, well, like we get more insight into Quicksilver for now. I kind of want to wrap up this discussion. But when the Hellers do meet, of course, none of them fess up to being the snitch. And Darrow is like, oh, I know none of you would have told. But again, like we said in the summary, he gives anybody who wants to leave the choice to leave before he reveals his new plots within plans within plots within plans. Holiday decides to stay behind because she doesn't want to abandon the Republic, but she does agree to watch over Darrow's family for him. So, you know, okay. I got to keep my mouth shut about Holiday for right now. And then Sefi speaks for the Obsidian because she's decided it's time for them to fight their own battles. Again, rightfully so. And Darrow watches the Obsidians go, knowing the strength they take with them and realizing, and this is kind of sad, for the first time in a decade, the Howlers are without the Queen of the Valkyrie and feeling as if Ragnar's spirit has finally departed and left Darrow without his protection. Wish Ragnar was here. He would have kicked Darrow in the shins. Before they leave, Severo wants to say goodbye to his daughters and Darrow wants to see Pax as well, thinking the constant pull of duty and family. They bear it together, but he bears it naturally. I feel I'm not the father my son needs. I should not leave before telling him I love him, but still, I'm afraid to face him. Yeah, because you're a bad father. Goes away to war for 10 years. Why doesn't my son love me? I don't understand. And when they're together, he like, it's so bad. Yeah, like at first things go well with Pax, who shows Darrow the hover bike he's been building. and Which is so cute. Oh my yes. God. Especially how mom wouldn't let me have it unless I did it myself. Love it. And then and then the whole thing about Auntie Victoria is teaching you about not going into debt. He says 60% interest and I just started cackling. I was like, oh, this poor child is about to learn. But no, that was so cute and wholesome. And naturally Darrow fucks it all up. Yeah. Also, um, I I just I have put packs in my pocket. He is safe. I have also put the other eight children in his cohort with him into my pockets. Yeah, they're all daughters. Yeah, it's just it's super cute. Darrow's just sitting back on his heels watching him, thinking Pax is like grinning and bursting to life, and he's falling in love with his son all over again. And unfortunately, though, Mustang catches Darrow before he leaves, reminding him that he's leaving her a mess, which by the way, Darrow, fuck you for this. And also, as somebody who is a leader of things who has been left in a mess of not my entire own creation. I feel this hardcore right now. Uh, she's like, Dancer's going to seek my impeachment. Like, you're my husband, and they're going to think that we share everything. Daryl muses, 
my wife, I've often thought can be two people. One is her, full of life and light and awkward innuendos and snorting laughter and imperfection. The other is the imperious lion. In her face, I feel the shadow of Augustus, my two great enemies, her brother and her father. And hey, bud, don't forget your biggest enemy, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just had to throw that in there. Could not let him get away with that one. Mm -mm. Buddy. Mustang calls Wolfgar, well, the wardens in general, but first she calls Wolfgar and tells him to bring the warden so that they can finish this the right way. But that doesn't go as planned because listen, okay. I, I will give Darrow this. He knows they will put him in a cell and he's like feeling that PTSD squeeze again, where the jackal is roving through the back of his mind. And he told himself that he would never be a prisoner again. He can't stand the idea of having his choice robbed from him and his body constricted or letting anybody ever strip him of his liberty again. I get all of that, but... He is so deep into his PTSD to a point where, well, like Dancer, it's clear that he hasn't had treatment himself, or clearly not enough. And the other thing is that Mustang knows this. Mustang is powerful enough to get him just put on house arrest or something. The fact that he is so caught up into this, and don't get me wrong, I get it. I have been lucky to not suffer from PTSD, so I can't imagine the level of mind warpiness that that would give him. But the fact that he can't bring himself to trust Mustang enough that she would protect him from that is also heartbreaking. And I think that was the biggest thing for me during this scene. I could feel my heart breaking for him and for Mustang because like, I could just see him getting so absorbed into his fears that he felt he had to do this, which is awful and sad. A few things bother me about this. One, just to kind of get it out of the way, is it is absolutely understandable when you get triggered that you're going to respond in ways that are consistent with the defense mechanisms that you created when you were in trauma, right? That does not excuse any of your behaviors when you're triggered. Secondly, Wolfgar specifically says, look, buddy, I got to arrest you, but nothing bad's going to happen. We're not going to put you in prison. We're not going to, like, none of that's going to happen. This is a formality that we have to do. And like you were saying, I think because of the power that Mustang has, I think the number of friends that he has throughout the Republic, he's not going to be seriously imprisoned, harmed, whatever. His perception that that is what is going to happen is a triggered response. Again, that is understandable maiming because even if we ignore the fact that he kills wolfgar his intent this entire scene is to dismember maim do massive amounts of trauma to everyone else there that yep. is never okay mm -hmm. no, there's yep. no justification for that where you can say well he was responding to a trigger from his trauma response no even with the medical advances that you have that allow people to get new arms, whatever, he is doing massive, massive amounts of damage and is causing massive amounts of trauma to many, many other people. And I say some of that because one of the things that I really believe here is this is the moment where Darrow really, really fucks up. Everything yes. else, like, yes, he's done bad stuff. He's made bad decisions. This is the moment where he should have actually given up. He should have said, this is shitty. 
but I have to do what's right here. And instead he chooses massive amounts of violence, trauma, and damage that ultimately results in Wolfgar's death. And Darrow is the only person to blame for that because while theoretically he is skilled enough that he could have not killed Wolfgar, entering into a combat with that many people and believing that you can exit that combat without having to cause damage and likely having to take lives because he also tries to turn people against themselves, which ends in two other people dying, but they're the people that tried to help Darrow escape from all of this. It's just massively fucked up. And while I acknowledge that Severo's shot that stuns Wolfgar and makes him change his positioning that ultimately leads to Darrow stabbing Wolfgar in the mouth, Severo is in no way to blame for any of this. Darrow knew that Severo was going to come to help him. Of course he steps in to help him. He would have been a shit friend not to help. If Severo didn't help, I would have been dropkicking him across the universe. Well, and also, first of all, even if Severo knew exactly what was going on, even if he knew that Mustang had called the wardens and that's exactly what was going on, he still never would have not helped Daryl because this is several we're talking about. And there's so much more about that relationship that is problematic. But in this particular case, several came in with a stunning weapon and it happened to be a small part of what caused Wolfgar's death. But the thing is, here's the thing. That's not what's important. Nobody is paying attention to the fact that Severo did that. What's important in this case is that Darrow is the one who stuck his razor through Wolfgar's head. Most other people didn't even see there was more beyond that. Severo didn't jump into this fight with a razor. Regardless, Darrow knows that this death is going to reach beyond this specific instance, right? Wolfgar was super important. He carried Ragnar's legend with him in a way. He was a hero. He was a symbol and not just to the Vox Populi. He was a symbol to the Obsidians. And now he has killed one of their favorite sons, okay? Whether or not he meant to, he didn't. But it doesn't matter. He did. And he's dead. P.S. What the fuck did you think would happen? This is like the summary of all his hubris. Yeah. He is so prideful that he goes into this situation and can't even trust his wife. This is like the real tragedy of the whole series. And I think Nick was really on point with describing all of it earlier. Does it logically make sense how he initially reacted with panic? Yes. The results of his overreaction and then his hubris in bringing a knife to a taser fight and mm-hmm. thinking he can get away with it. Or rather, no, 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 sorry, sorry. He brought a sword to a taser fight. And like the fact that he genuinely thought that that would work out well for him, wild. I just finished reading this like five or seven minutes before we started, right? <laughs> and that was the part where I just like, I took my headphones out, put them down, and I just shouted, what the fuck, in my basement. So, Darrow and Severo flee. And that is the end of Darrow's story in part one of Iron Gold. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will cover Lyria's chapters from part one. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.